Podcastle, episode 271, for July 30th, 2013. Nightfall in the Scent Garden, by Claire Humphrey. Rated R. Contains love, and as we all know, sometimes that hurts. Hello, and welcome to Podcastle. I'm Anna Schwind, your host and co-editor. For those of us who live in the Northern Hemisphere, summer has come. Summer means different things to different people, but for almost everyone, it means a bounty of fruit and some type of connection with a garden. Your garden may be an acre of fruit trees or a complicated raised bed system that gives you lettuce in the spring and garlic in the fall, not just zucchini in the summer. Or your garden may be one topsy-turvy tomato plant hanging on your back deck, or some basil in your windowsill, or maybe just the color of some marigolds or a geranium in a pot by your doorway. Maybe your garden is nothing more than a philodendron or a bamboo plant in your cubicle. At any rate, even if nothing changes in your lifestyle during the summer months, you will, at the very least, be visually assaulted by a more verdant landscape at this time of year. For the past two months, I've been strolling through the botanical gardens in my city at least once a week, and my faithfulness has been rewarded by an intense greening and a successive unfolding of blossoms in different areas of my walking path. A few weeks ago, the daylilies were parading their colors along with the roses, And now, the lotuses are wide open at the lake's edge. Every visit shows me something new. The Botanical Gardens has done a whole plants as food thing this summer, planting chicory, which looks a little bit like a dandelion, in other words, like a weed, and stevia and agave. They've planted this bushy, hedgy-looking version of basil at the entrance to the building, and they're herb garden is heavily scented. The sweet, soothing smell of lavender comes first, and then the piney, sharp scent of rosemary. I cheat and rub a basil leaf, please don't tell, to get that peppery, fresh jolt. Each scent carries its own emotional freight, and that's because human olfaction is not only tied to the limbic system, but also has access to the amygdala and the hippocampus. That's some serious emotional and memory connection there. Today's story is Nightfall in the Scent Garden by Claire Humphrey. Listen with your olfactory sense attuned and see what you can recall and what you don't even know you have forgotten. It first appeared in Strange Horizons in March 2012. Claire Humphrey writes novels and short stories, mainly about unhappy magicians. She works in the book trade as a buyer for Indigo Books, and she is the reviews editor at Idiomancer. In addition to all things literary, she likes boxing, photography, dark coffee, well-hopped beer, and frivolous shoes. If you have been listening to Podcastle for a while, then you have previously heard her work in episode 173, Who in Mortal Chains, and more recently in the thoughtful theater-based piece, Bleaker Collegiate Presents an All-Female Production of Waiting for Godot, episode 248. 
Looking over that list, it's encouraging to note how different each thing we've run by her has been, and today's story is no exception. Nightfall in the Scent Garden is read for you today by Kara Grace. She's previously read episode 204, The Rowan Gentleman, and episode 178, Braiding the Ghosts. So, breathe deep. Tell me whether that's roses or sage you smell, and enjoy the story. Nightfall in the Scent Garden by Claire Humphrey If you read this, you'll tell me what grew over the arbor was ivy, not wisteria. If you are in a forgiving mood, you'll open the envelope and you'll remind me how your father's van broke down and we were late back, how we sat drinking iced tea while the radiator steamed. You might dig out that picture, the one with the two of us sitting on the willow stump, and point out how small we were, how pudgy, how like any other pair of schoolgirls, how our ill-cut hair straggled over the shoulders of our flannel shirts. You'll remind me of the stories we used to tell each other. We spent hours embroidering them, improving on each other's inventions. We built palaces and peopled them with dynasties, you'll say and we made ourselves emperors in every one, and every one was false. If you read this, you'll call your mother, or mine, they'll confirm what you recall. By then, though, you will begin to disbelieve it yourself. If you think on it long enough, you'll recall the kiss. I left it there, untouched the single thread you could pull to unravel this whole tapestry. You'll start to understand none of these things happened the way you remember. If you read this, you'll learn how I betrayed you. We gave ourselves names of power. We signed them in the guest book at the gallery. I called myself Faustine Fiamma after a dream, and you, Rosemundi. Rose of the world, rose of alchemy, flame and flower, two girls in flannel and training bras. We made up addresses in Paris, Ontario, because we did not speak enough French to have come from the other Paris. Your father carried his sculpture wrapped in brown burlap, one of the ones he'd done of you, as a smaller child, dancing. You whispered to me that now every art lover in Ontario would know You had an Audi. We slipped away, outdoors. This much I left you. In the garden was the sundial. A great barbed face streaked with verdigris. It told no time just then. The sun too low behind the curtain of purple blossom. The light pearly herbs grew in beds around the plinth. Time and roseberry both, probably. And a dozen other things. I don't remember them all. Only the warmed sense of them on the air. We walked counterclockwise about the beds, touching all of the brass plaques which bore the names of the herbs in Roman capitals and in Braille. You shut your eyes and I wrapped my scarf about your head and tied it behind and led you by both hands. Here's where I stopped. To be safe. Here's where your father came outside and told us it was time to go. I think I made him realistic, don't you? Fox bright eyes and hair and a dozen pockets on his jacket. I think he really had a jacket like that. 
You're thinking right now that you don't want to hear what comes next. Stop reading then. I can make my choice without you if I must. Your father didn't enter the garden. He didn't take us out to the van or back to Toronto. Not then. He didn't finish up with his friends in the gallery until after midnight. No. You and I circuited the garden. After a while, the sun went down, but the light in the sky lingered, grainy and soft like an old photograph. Bad started overhead. It's nearly time, you said. Time? I plucked a sprig of rosemary. I bit down on one of the leaves and placed another at the entrance of your mouth. You opened, tasted it, your breath warm on my fingertips. I've had enough of being blind, you said. I untied my scarf from your eyes. I saw your pupils blown open like those wells the glaciers grind in rock, deep and wide, breathing cold air. You looked past me. Can you hear that? You said. A horse. Someone's coming. And you fell down at my feet. Grass crushed beneath you. I felt the tender shoots of it smear my hands when I reached under you. I lifted you by your shoulders. I dragged you against my body, but I could not raise you up. You were awake, though. Your eyes huge and swimming dark. Your lips parted, smiling. She comes for me, you said. She came indeed. I heard her horse stamp and breathe. I heard her stir up chime. I felt her step on the earth. I kept my face turned down. Rosa Mundi, she said. You always told me such vivid stories. I countered with stories of my own. We pirouetted through hours of fascinating lies. If we'd been a bit younger or a bit more innocent, it would have been a game of let's pretend. Instead, it was let's become. We spun ourselves costumes to wear into the world. Our stories were about ourselves, the people we might be someday, the people we might love. Play was turning into practice. I gave myself a dozen different fathers better than my own, who was no more than a cigar box full of yellowed Polaroids. You gave yourself a wise woman to replace your mother, who was often drunk in those days. You related how she taught you to weave a chain of clover for luck in your dance recital, to burn an owl feather to keep away nightmares. It was too bad she was fiction. Or, so I thought, until she came for you. Queen of air, you said, which was the phrase you had said before amidst your tales. Your voice strained, winter husky. She laughed and answered to it. Rosa, she said, my Rosa, you are mine, are you not? Yes, you whispered. I pinched your arm where it was palest and softest, but you twitched away. Yes, you said again, nearly soundless. Not your father's muse, not your mother's helper. No, your mouth shaped, your lips began to darken. Not the one to warm your brother's milk. No. Not the one to pour your stepfather's wine. No. You arched your back, 
your arm fell free of my embrace. Not your teacher's pet. Not the one to... What is that that you are to this one, Rosamundi? You tried to answer. Froth burst on your lower lip. She's my friend, I said to the ground. Her laughter withered the grass around her feet. I saw it shrivel, spreading out from the toe of her slim brown boot. I still had not looked at her face. What are the rights of a friend, Rosa Mundi? You were past answering by then. I could feel you shivering in long, racking waves. All the stories you told me were true. Wonders and horrors. I knew the shape stories took. I was a studious child. She's my love, I said. By claiming it, did I make it true? The Queen of Air heard me and stood still. No noise of boot on grass, no ring of horse gear. Only a moth in the time, a bat in the dusk, a gnat caught in the long strands of my hair. Faustine, she said. I still wonder what would have happened if we had named ourselves different names that day. Faustine, maker of bargains, bargain with me. Of what worth is your love? My first kiss, Dane Ellison, behind the portable during the sixth grade Halloween dance. My second, Dane again, under the willow by the creek behind his subdivision. My third kiss. You know my third. I left it in your memory just as it was. I know you have not forgotten, although you will never speak of it. Those earlier kisses were to this one, as ice cubes in a glass of tap water are to an iceberg, looming above and beneath the sea. The Queen of Air, for I still have no other name for her, bargained with me. Even before she finished speaking, I felt the breath shock back into your body, the rigidity leave your spine. You turned against me, coughing and heaving. I found later a spot of blood upon the leg of my jeans. Maybe we all get such offers, once or twice or thrice in our little lives. Maybe someone takes every one of us up on a mountain, shows us the breadth of the world, and tells us it could be ours. Maybe, in our wisdom, most of us turn it down. I took it. The breadth of the world was held in the span of my hands, spitting blood onto my pants. I took the bargain. I took the choice from you. The kiss. My grass-stained hands cradling your face, nodding in the wealth of your hair. You tasted of blood and rosemary. Your lips shut for a moment against mine, but your breath still came hard. You pulled away to pant through your mouth. I watched your pupils narrow down and the sinews in your wrist draw tight as your hand closed. It closed on nothing. The queen had turned away. The fur at the edge of her mantle brushed my elbow. I still have the scar, a pale frost burn. 
You gulped air, wiped your mouth on your sleeve. You shook your head dizzily. When I saw your eyes meet mine again, proper blue now, tear wet, I touched your hair and smoothed it down and freed a broken stem from the strands. You slapped my hand away. What will I do now? You said, your voice still scraped raw. Where else can I go? By the time your father had done selling his sculpture, the one of you as a little girl dancing, I had cleaned up everything. You, your mind, your face, my hands. All except for the splot of blood on my jeans, which no one noticed. Some of the richness went. The royal purple wisteria dulled down to plain greenery. The sunset smeared and pale. Some of it stayed. The taste of herbs and the brightness of your hair. I left you the kiss, but you never let me repeat it. You met Jason Krantz not long after that, and you dated him most of the way through high school. I never saw you with another girl. Jason Krantz used to corner you in the stairwell and rope your hair around his fist and pull your head close to his, seizing the tip of your ear in his teeth. He used to make you sit on his lap in the coffee shop and he'd pinch your thigh if you moved too much. I asked the queen if I could do something about Jason Krantz. She reminded me of the terms of my bargain. I'd asked her about the clover chains, the owl feathers, the little protections she had given you once upon a time. She told me they had not been protections. You went through a plump phase, and then through a phase where you were thin as a grass stem, bent under the weight of your sweaters. You and I took to hanging out in one of the restaurants on Spandina, where no one asked for ID. You would order Sing Tao while I ate chicken fried rice. If you stumbled on the way out, I would walk you home. All of this happened just as you recall, and I am to blame. I said you were my love. I made you stay. I get to know every morning that I'm waking into the same world in which you live. I get to see you every few months when you're back in the province. Sometimes I even get a stiff little hug and my hand touches the paintbrush edge of your hair before you pull away. Not lately. Not since those things I said after your wedding. I wrote to apologize. You didn't write back. I get to hear from my own mother that you and your husband are in town over the holidays. I get to imagine you in your old house, sitting on the window seat. For a few days, you and I get to share the same weather. I get to leave messages at your mother's house and wait for your call, which does not come. For this, I'm promised to a hundred years beneath the hill. The winter before our graduation, you held the hand of your stepfather as he lingered in a morphine dream. You told me you'd forgiven him, and I watched your fingers go tight and bloodless on his. When he was gone, 
You stopped wearing the gold cross he'd given you for your first communion. You said you'd go to prom with me. I bought a suit in the boys' department at Eaton's. A week before the night, you said you were going to get back together with Jason Kranz instead, and wasn't it great that you'd found a real date? I went home silently and canceled the order for your corsage. You dropped out of art and past history and aced chem. On the edges of your notes, you wrote your first name and a blank line for your last with hearts and question marks about it. Never Rosa Mundi, nor any other such name. You would stop telling stories by then. Sometimes I'd catch that wide, dark look in your eyes, in the cafeteria while you picked the chocolate chips out of your muffin, outside the locker room while you waited for Jason Kranz to pack up his football gear, or in the annex as we walked past the dance studio where you were no longer enrolled. You still wanted to leave. You couldn't remember how. I caught the bouquet at your wedding. It crumbled to dust in my hands. Not right then, but later, in the hospitality suite at the end of the night. The queen and I agree on this. You are my love, and I will have no other. You, however, have always been free to love as you will. I did not have the foresight to arrange it any other way. And for this, I am grateful. I was not a cruel child, but I was a child. I could have made things so much worse. There is a Faustine in a poem, you see, who I did not know when I chose the name. To love her is to court death. You seem happy with your love, truly. Eric Farrer, a real person, a person you chose for yourself. He has given you a son. He likes trading stocks and baking cakes. He dislikes motorcycles and fitness enthusiasts. And he does not remind me of either your stepfather or your father. On your wedding day, Eric Farrer wore a lake blue pocket square to match your eyes. You took his name. I haven't seen the dark look on you in some years, now that I think of it. The queen comes, now and again, to watch you when you are near me. She breathes over my neck, leaving blisters. She reminds me that if I break my bargain, you must go with her. She tells me all I need to do is ask. If I break my bargain, I will not spend a hundred years under the hill and I will not have an icy queen stirring the curtains of my bedroom, driving away any lover who might spend the night. I will not have to pant over the tiny scraps I have of you. A hair ribbon, a sport top you left at my house. You will not have Eric Ferrer. Your son will not have his mother. But you'll have what you wanted all those years ago in the garden. If you read this, you can tell me. Do you still want it? Does the queen's voice ever call to you out of my hearing, subtle and cold? Do you ever wake troubled? 
forgetting your dream with the frost on your lips. Are you opening my letters? Or will this one, like the last, be thrown away, still sealed? The queen brought me that one to taunt me, I think. She left it on my bedside table. The envelope, cold, parched, and wrinkled by her fingertips. Your address was smudged a bit, as if by rain. Through the paper I saw the ghost of my own script, heavy and black. The choice should not be all mine to make. But how can I compel you to answer me? Shall I stand beneath your sensible vinyl-framed bedroom window and cry out until you rise from your marriage bed? Rosa Mundi, in which world will you bloom? In which world will I finally catch fire? And welcome back. Love, romantic love, is hard. I really, really hate the romanticized, romantic, always happy, always fun love that's sold by Hollywood. People told Emma and I when we got married, way back when, you think you know what love is now. 10 or 15 or 20 years from now, you'll look back and you'll wonder, did we really even know what love was then? And the answer is yes. Yes, we did, actually. It's been almost 15 years now. But wow, we've also learned so much since then. So much of the different shapes and the different feelings and the different emotions that are tied with love. Love isn't just the joy or the adoration or the sexiness that makes you feel like you're on fire or blossoming. That's only part of it. Love is also pain and heartbreak and sacrifice. Love really does hurt. Hopefully, that's not all it does, but... I think that it's an aspect of love that we often forget about sometimes. So this episode is for all of you out there who have had your hearts broken. May your hearts heal, if they haven't already. Sometimes it takes a while. So thanks so much to Claire for writing this one, and reminding us that that's part of the bargain, and to Kara for the really lovely, heartbreaking reading. Alright, feedback this week is from Megan Arkenberg's The Copper Roof War read by Eric Luke. It was the story about a kingdom and a house, a house that was divided. Divided like our forums were on this story's reception. Evergreen Monster said, about halfway through, I realized that I was super into this story and that Helene was awesome. I would actually like to read an entire book around her and the Duke. Uh, This is Dave again? Yeah, me too. I was particularly impressed with the playing with timelines. It was written in a way that really enhances the tension and fed the audience's information in a smart and precise way. The narrator was especially good in these transitions as well. I had an easy time following where and when I was in the story, and I feel like this could have easily not been the case. Devoted135 said, I guess I'm in the middle of the pack with this one. On the one hand, it was totally awesome, and I want to see a Tim Burton-style movie of it. By the way, was I the only one who imagined all of the people to be doll-sized? On the other hand, I never got to the point where I knew all the characters by name, so I had a ton of, wait, what? moments. 
So overall, this was a win for me, but I totally see why people might find it too obscure for audio. Thank you very much for those comments. Feel free to let us know what you thought of this week's story or any of the stories we've run here by heading over to forum.escapeartist.net. What else are you going to do? Work? Speaking of our forum, don't forget about the Flash Fiction Contest that's going to happen exclusively there. Let's see. Two stories, 500 words each, original content, send them to us. Check out our forum for more details. If you like what we're doing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and making a donation. Your money goes to paying our authors and keeping our podcast up in the air, broadcasting our pirate signal to the kingdom under the hill and beyond. Thank you. That was our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. On behalf of all of us here at Podcastle, Associate Editor Ann Leckie, Sound Producer Peter Wood, your editors Anna Schwind and myself Dave Thompson, Thank you so much for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back in one week when we kick off our big month of science fantasy stories. Until then, make your bargains carefully and don't give up on love. We'll see you in a week. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Our closing quote comes from Pablo Neruda, who said, I love you as certain dark things are to be loved, in secret, between the shadow and the soul. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a week.